0: Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our World Risk Register Threat Monitoring Service. These podcasts are released on a weekly basis, covering timely and relevant topics. In these discussions, we hope to shed light on evolving scenarios and provide actionable predictions and implications. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Hello and welcome to the podcast. In this session, we're going to be talking about ethno-religious tensions and the effects on politics in South Asia. And with me to discuss this topic, I'm joined by our Asia-Pacific analyst, Phoebe Worthington. Phoebe, thank you very much for joining us. So uh, what's the context here? What's been going on?
1: Well, last year, the Asia-Pacific region experienced a significant increase in ethno-religious conflict. This is going to remain a key trend throughout 2019. And what it's been driven by is the willingness of certain influential actors to exploit religious fault lines in their country to further a political agenda. This we've seen most starkly in Sri Lanka and Pakistan in recent weeks.
0: OK, so let's start with Pakistan, perhaps. What's been, what's been happening there?
1: Well, on the 31st of October, Christian woman Asia Bibi was acquitted on blasphemy charges after she was sentenced to death about eight years ago. What this meant was that a number of extremist religious groups in the country called for nationwide protests against this decision by the Supreme Court, and a number of cities saw quite significant violence. I think roadblocks were set up, and a lot of vehicles were set fire to, particularly in Karachi and Rawalpindi, where she was held in prison. And whilst these protests have ended now, what it signals is a broader presence of more radical anti-blasphemy sentiment in the country, which is stoked by political groups and that this trend might re-emerge again in the future. And what this is driven by, I would say, is the presence of more extremist Islamist parties in Pakistan's last election in July, which saw Imran Khan come to power. And this brought more hardline religious sentiment closer to the forefront of politics. And these groups start to use anti-blasphemy and religious sentiment as a rallying factor within Pakistan to try and stir up unrest. And this example shows that they've done it very effectively. It's interesting to note that the protests actually ended after the government conceded to their demands. What they were obviously demanding was that she be sentenced to death, but they ended up reaching an agreement that she wouldn't be deported from the country and would therefore remain in danger. So that ended the protest, but what it almost did was vindicate them, and it's likely to mean that they will continue in future, and it hasn't addressed the issue of anti-blasphemy, unrest and violence in the country.
0: Okay. One of the other concerns, I guess, in Pakistan over recent years has been that of anti-US sentiment, does that play in here at all, or is that uh, largely a separate issue?
1: No, it definitely does. What's significant is that a lot of these groups, which I'm mentioning, are fundamentally anti-Western. They're against the Pakistani government engaging in the US's war on terror, etc. And therefore, it conflates very easily with anti-Western and anti-US sentiment. I think it was at the beginning of last year that they had a breakdown in relations over an intelligence-sharing agreement, which all stemmed from accusations that Pakistan was harboring terrorists. So now these sentiments are at the state level as well. And so as Pakistan continues to be particularly frosty with the US, and particularly as Donald Trump has taken a harder stance on Pakistan, this power play might increasingly conflate with this lower-down, grassroots, anti- anti-Western sentiment, which, as I say, is very easily confused or rather linked with anti-blasphemy and sort of hardline religious sentiments in Pakistan.
0: And is this anti-Western sentiment, religious uh, religious persecution, is there any evidence of that playing out in a specific threat to Westerners working in the country or foreign businesses in the country? Or are we talking more about a shifting uh, contextual uh, development which which is sort of growing a, a broad threat rather than specific evidence at this stage?
1: A bit of both, I would say. Uh, there hasn't been any recent examples of Western businesses being targeted. But recently in the Netherlands, the Party for Freedom decided to host a cartoon competition to draw the Prophet Muhammad. I think the Pakistani government... asked them to recall it and they did however the death threats and the sort of threats to Dutch businesses which arose from that in Pakistan along with a number of protests do signal that any further developments or any anti-western developments and even accusations of western blasphemy could easily see these these types of businesses or um, even embassies and just westerners who obviously appear very uh, isolated in places like this, could easily be targeted.
0: Thank you for your insight there, Phoebe. That's great. Moving on to Sri Lanka then, what uh, what's the latest there?
1: Well, all this emerged from a political crisis in Sri Lanka. On the 26th of October, the Sri Lankan president, Sirisina, decided to dismiss his prime minister and to instate the former president, Rajapaksa, as his prime minister. This was probably a pragmatic measure, even though it's now caused a political standoff, um, which was driven by the fact that Rajapaksa has grown in support over the last year. I think in February he announced that he would run for president after he had won the municipal elections in Colombo. His victory there suggested to a lot of politicians in Sri Lanka that the incumbent government was steadily losing the confidence of the people and that the unnatural coalition, as it were, was creating a lot of policy stagnation, which was causing frustrations. Most recently, there was an 80,000-strong rally in the capital of Colombo, which was led by Rajapaksa. And this is probably what really shocked Siracina into taking action and into integrating Rajapaksa unilaterally into his party rather than facing a snap election where he would likely lose power. However, it's been broadly unsuccessful for him because the country now faces a political deadlock in which there is a vote of no confidence against his coalition with Rajapaksa and the speaker is refusing to acknowledge this constitutionally And all three leaders in this scenario are refusing to shift.
0: Okay, and how do ethno-religious tensions play into this political scenario?
1: Well, former President Rajapaksa was linked with the persecution of ethnic Tamils during the time of the Civil War. And the international community, particularly the US, have called for investigations into the possibility that he is guilty of major war crimes. What I would say is that his rise to power or rise in political appeal has prompted a return to more vocal ethno-religious persecution in the country. This has already been demonstrated by a number of protests and uh, a violent mob in fact which took place in the central district of Kandy just after the municipal elections which, which saw his party come to power. And so it can be directly linked with a rise in ethno-religious persecution, as these were led by Sinhalese Buddhists targeting Muslims in that district. What this might mean is that as Rajapaksa increases in power and as rallies in the capital take place calling for his government and his coalition, the political developments will conflate with ethno-religious tensions in the country and we'll see further outbreaks of violence and a retreat from human rights practice.
0: Okay, and are there any other countries in the region that are demonstrating uh, this sort of similar conflation between ethno-religious tensions and and politics?
1: In India, the ruling party, the, the Bharatiya Janata Party, have been directly linked with stoking Hindu nationalist sentiments in the country, which increases their popularity, A recent study by Cambridge University showed that their popularity was boosted by an estimate of 9%, which can be the difference between them winning and losing. And critically, they face an election next year in April or May. What this might mean is that they will begin to make inflammatory comments or appear to condone religious violence, and that as such we might see an increase in religiously motivated protests and mob violence targeting religious minorities in the country, that being Muslims, Christians, um, all driven by heated Hindu nationalist sentiment. And in the longer term, that might see an increase in more heated religious debate in the political sphere, which, much like Sri Lanka, will raise broader human rights concerns and the concerns of the international community, which, again, in in the longer term, will raise the risk of possibly sanctions and investigations into these countries.
0: Brilliant. Phoebe, thank you very much for all of your insight there. Of course, everything that we've talked about here is going to be covered in some detail in our annual forecast for 2019, which is due to come out in January of next year. Nonetheless, if anything that we've spoken about today has triggered further questions or comments, please do not hesitate to get in touch and we'd be more than happy to have a chat. Thank you for listening and we hope you have found this podcast useful. If you would like to learn more about our services or if you have any questions or feedback, please get in touch at info